invite you to turn your Bible to John chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 20 to 36. John 12, 20 to 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. To Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, It has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. While you have the light, sorry, the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Please join me in prayer once again. Lord, we pray because we want your help. Lord, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, that it's through your word that we find spiritual nourishment, encouragement. It's how our souls are strengthened. It's a light to our path a lamp to our feet. Lord, without your word, we would be lost. And so we ask that you would illuminate it. Help us both to understand what it says and how it applies to our life. And help me in my attempts to make it clear so that all of us would rightly respond to your desired purpose for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The one thing 
that all of us can be certain of in life, regardless of our religious upbringing or how we were raised as children. The one thing that each one of us can be absolutely certain about is that one day we're going to die. The time of our death is appointed at some time. We don't necessarily know when that is. It could be five hours from now, could be 50 years from now. But the day will come. We don't like to think about death, which is partially why Christians love Resurrection Sunday, because it reminds us that for us, death is not death, it's just sleep. Because one day we will awake. We will rise again in a glorified body. And that's one of the reasons we love this day. But at the same time, death is still real. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. So just as Christ rose from the dead, Christians too will rise. But the time of our death, again, even with that promise, will not be a pleasant time. And how would you respond if you knew that that hour of your death was imminent? In just a few days or in just a few hours. And I ask that question because this is the reality that's facing Jesus in this text. And it's this impending reality that's facing Jesus that prompts him to really deliver two messages in this text. One message to his disciples and another message to the crowds. He begins with his message to the disciples in verse 20. Now, among those who went to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew and Alan, Drew and Philip went and told Jesus. So the context of this message that Jesus is going to give to his disciples is set by this question of some Greeks coming to Jesus' disciples and asking if they can see him. And this is a perplexing question to Philip and Andrew. And the reason they were perplexed is because earlier Jesus had specifically instructed them not to go to the Gentiles, but only to the Jews. He said this in Matthew 10. The twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He also told a Syrophoenician woman who had come seeking his help that he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew fifteen twenty four. And so the disciples confusion is understandable. Is Jesus OK meeting with these Greeks? Notice how Jesus responds. Verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So how does Jesus' response relate 
to the request of the Greeks. What is he communicating to his disciples here? Well, first, Jesus recognizes that the Greeks desire to see him. He interprets that as a sign that his hour has finally come. Because Jesus knows that as he comes to Jerusalem, he will be rejected by the Jews and he will be killed. He actually told his disciples three, or three times earlier as they approached Jerusalem that this is what was going to happen. And he was very specific the third time in Mark 10, verse 33. It says this. See, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So when the Jews declare three days later or just a day later on Good Friday, that they had no king but Caesar. God's focus turned from the Jews to the Gentiles. And God will not reject the Jews forever, though, because the prophets repeatedly foretold that this is what would happen. They would reject their Messiah. His grace would go to the Gentiles. But after all the Gentiles had heard the gospel, then finally God would restore Israel again to himself. But notice that Jesus describes this coming rejection of him as glorification. Why would you do that? Well, it's because he knows that it's through the Jews' rejection of him and his death that he will then be vindicated when he rises from the dead in a glorified body. As it says in Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So the first reason Jesus responds this way is because he's about to be glorified through his resurrection, which is going to happen in a few days. And, and he knows this because the Greeks are now coming to him. God is now turning towards the Greeks. The second reason, though, Jesus responds this way is because his rejection and death is going to result in the salvation being proclaimed to all the Gentiles. And that's the point of his metaphor about the grain of wheat. His death will result in the bearing of much fruit. But I think what's, what's remarkable about this statement is that Jesus, in saying this, immediately then applies what he's saying about himself to his disciples. Notice that. He's not just announcing the fruitfulness of his death. He's calling his disciples to be included in his fruitfulness by their choosing to, to, to die along with him. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Notice how he defines following. By hating his life in this world. That's what it means to follow Christ. 
They die to themselves. Jesus is essentially describing to his followers what true faith looks like. As, as Paul said, the apostles seek to bring about the obedience of faith. Faith results in repentance. It results in obedience to God. Those who truly believe Jesus and the Christ obey what he says. And this is because repentance essentially is death to this world. That's what it means to repent. This world, as you know, is defined by pride and self-love. Right? John, in his epistle, says that it's, it's, it's the lust of the flesh. It's the lust of the eyes and it's the pride of life. That's what it means to be worldly. And believing Christians repent from living for themselves and choose to live for God. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. For Christians, obedience to God means more to them than their own lives. It means more to them than life itself. Honoring Christ means more than pursuing their own ambitions and their own desires. So faith is not simply an abstract belief in the existence of God. Faith is not even simply believing that Jesus is the Son of God. True faith results in obedience to God. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, you will obey Him. Because He's God. He's your ruler. He's your Lord. To have faith is to trust God's will for your life because He's God, because He's all-powerful, because He's sovereign, because He's wise. To have faith is to trust in His will for your life more than your own desires and inclinations. If your desires and inclinations come into contrast with what he's telling you to do, a Christian in faith does what God wants, not what they feel like. A Christian, therefore, wants to obey even the most difficult commands of Scripture. Like this one. Do not resist the one who is evil. Yes, Jesus actually said that. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn him the other. If anyone would sue you and take your coot tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. They want to obey the command to forgive even their enemies. Because Jesus said, so also will my heavenly Father do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. He says in Matthew 5.44, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There are many, many difficult commands in the Bible. But a Christian 
to a Christian, His commands are not burdensome. 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commands are not burdensome. So salvation is free. There's nothing you need to do to be reconciled to God. All you need to do is believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that He's the means of your salvation. That's all you need to do. So there's no cost on your part to be saved. But after you're saved, there will be a cost. It might cost you everything. Because such faith requires that you no longer live for the things of this world, but for Christ. Because in dying to the world, the world is no longer going to be your friend. The world that was your home, that you were comfortable with, that you knew, now hates you. You are its declared enemy. Seventy-eight years ago, to this day, seventy-eight years ago today, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was hung in Nazi Germany for his part in the conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And he's known by many for this quote taken from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life. But it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or maybe a death like Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it's the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. But notice where following Jesus will ultimately lead. That where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is promising eternal glory for anybody who would follow him. Eternal glory. They might die to this world in, in order to enjoy glory in the next world. So there's, there's no real loss in giving up this world. These temporary and short-lived pleasures. This is why Paul said in Philippians 3, we read it earlier, but whatever gain I had, this I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain him. Because even the greatest things of this life are as nothing compared to the glory that's to come. 
And Paul's not being theoretical in saying this. In saying that he's suffered the loss of all things. Present loss for eternal gain defined his life. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, that famous chapter about the resurrection. He says, I die every day. I die every day. And he gets specific as to what he means in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. See, in counting everything this world considered as rubbish, that meant Paul knew he would be considered as rubbish by this world. So this isn't theoretical. This isn't just some abstract thought. This, this has teeth to it. Christ is calling us to die to what this world offers. Jesus isn't being theoretical when he calls people to follow him. He truly means they need to be ready to let their lives go. And all that this life holds. He says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I mean, just just notice where Jesus focus is at this hour, his impending death. He's not thinking about what he's losing, leaving behind. He's not licking his wounds. What's he aiming at? Rather than loving his life in this world, he set his heart on glorifying God. That is where his mind was fixed. Jesus knows that God is going to be most glorified in him through his obedience, even to death upon a cross. He doesn't seek to save his life, but instead he declares Father, glorify your name. And brothers and sisters, this needs to be our prayer as well. When we feel the tension in our, between our flesh and our soul, knowing what, we should be, what, we, what God's calling us to do, and yet our flesh is screaming at us, don't do it, it's not worth it, it's going to be, it's going to be too humiliating, it's going to be too painful. When we feel this tension, we need to pray the same prayer. God, glorify your name in me. We need to follow Christ's example here. And notice that God answers his prayer immediately and audibly. That's remarkable because only, only two other times in Scripture does God speak audibly to his son. The first was at his baptism. The second was at the transfiguration. And then this time. Is the third. Why here? Well, the reason the Father speaks here is to reassure Christ in his prayer 
But Jesus says that it came not so much for his sake, but for theirs. The primary person is God speaks is to affirm to everyone there the truth of what Jesus has just said. That in dying to ourselves, that is how we honor him. That is how he is most glorified. See, many, many Christians talk today about wanting to glorify God with their lives. Right? Soli Deo Gloria, Gloria was the battle cry of the Reformation. We love proclaiming the glory of God. Right? Professional athletes, after winning a championship, will say they did it for the glory of God. Or musicians and actors, when receiving an award, will, will seek to give God glory. It's common to assume that God is most glorified when we gather together amongst our friends and we're singing songs that, that allow us to acutely focus on the reality of who Christ is and what He's done. In our culture... We assume that God is most glorified when we are most satisfied. That is not the case. John Piper rightly said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The satisfaction has to be in him. We're satisfied because we're in him. Therefore, we don't need the comfortable surroundings. We just need Christ. We're satisfied in Him. If we're satisfied in Him, we're free. We're free to let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. God is most glorified in our deaths. Because that is what shows he is supreme in our affections and in our ambitions. He is what matters most to us. And that is most clearly seen when we choose to deny ourselves and to follow him. So when you say you want to live to the glory of God, understand what that means. We see in verse 29 that the crowd of people hear what God says. And Jesus again tells them in verse 30 that this is because God wanted them to hear his voice. Because God is giving them one last affirmation that Jesus is his son. And in verse 29, Jesus' focus turns from his message to his disciples to give a message to the crowds. The message he gave to his disciples was, I'm going to die to bear fruit. I want you to follow me which means you too must die, and in dying you will bear fruit. But now his focus is on the crowds. And his simple point, his simple message to them is, now is the time to believe. Notice his emphasis on now. First in verse 27, but then twice again in verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. I mean, Jesus is being very emphatic here. Now, now, now is the time to believe, he tells them. Now is the time because now is the time of the end. 
in verse 31, Jesus summarizes all of that the Old Testament foretold about the Messiah's work. The world would be judged. Satan would be cast out. But before this takes place, the Messiah must be lifted up from the earth. That is, he'll be crucified. And it's after this crucifixion that he'll draw all people to himself. Jesus actually foretold this back in John chapter 3 in his conversation with Nicodemus. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is reminding them of what he said. I'm about to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up because I came to die for you. It is only through my death that you can have eternal life. And now is the time to believe it. Notice how the crowd responds when he says this. The son of the crowd answered him. We had heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And Jesus' statement about the Messiah to be lifted up confuses them because they assume that when the Messiah came, he would judge the world, he would cast out Satan, he would exalt Israel. So if the Son of Man is lifted up, if he's crucified or if he's gone, what about all these promises? Isn't he supposed to reign the nations with a rod of iron? The answer, as you know, is that his primary goal in coming was to save people. And he can't do that unless he dies first. And then once that's accomplished, then he can establish his kingdom in Israel. But notice that Jesus doesn't explain this. He doesn't even really answer their question. Because he has one thing he's trying to communicate to the crowds. Now is the time. He's saying, don't get confused. Don't get wrapped up in trying to have all of your eschatological points arranged about God's plan for the future. What you need to be most concerned about is, are you in the light? Are you saved? Do you believe Right? Light is a metaphor for living for God. He wants them to know now is the time to believe because now the light's with you and it won't be with you much longer. Walk while you have the light. And, and consider Jesus' final, final words. Notice especially the imperatives. Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He's warning them. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. While they have the light, the people need to believe in the light. The implication, again, being the light's not going to be here much longer. And he doesn't tell them how long they have. But it turns out they only had minutes. Notice the last phrase. When Jesus, he departed and hid himself. This was their last opportunity to believe. How do you know if you have any more time to repent? How do you know if this is not your last opportunity? The crowds probably thought they had more time. They had, a, they had, their, own, they had their own plan for what even Jesus was going to do as the Messiah. I recognize that often the biggest thing that comes that keeps people from coming to Christ is the assumption that they, they have more time. That if they just take the time, if they have, if, if God just gives them a little more time, when it'll be more convenient, then they'll come later. They think there's got to be a better time than now because right now there's just some things they love too much. They got to fix their heart first. They got to clean up their life first. And they assume there's always going to be more time. But we see here that there comes a point where enough is enough. Jesus emphatically warned them, now is the time. Now. And they ignored him. Because when he was done and they still wouldn't believe, he hid himself from them. When people repeatedly refuse to listen and repent, God eventually hides himself from them. God isn't a cartoon character. He's a real person. And he hates sin. He hates rebellion. He's patient, but his patience has limits. And so I urge you to consider, if you're not currently following Christ, now is the time. Whatever's preventing you from following Him, is it worth risking an end to His patience with you? What is it that's keeping you from committing your life to Him right now? Is it worth the risk that this may be the last opportunity you have? It was the last opportunity the crowds had. And your opportunity to be made right with God will not last forever. And it won't cost you anything to grab it right now. All it will cost you is sin and death and all the empty pleasures that this world promises that always leave you empty anyway. The things that make life truly miserable. Let these last words ring in your ears. He departed and hid himself from them.
Now is the time. Are you finally ready to repent fully? Give your life wholly and completely to obeying your Lord. The Apostle John wrote earlier these words. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. One day the time of your death will come. And how you respond to the imminence of death on that day will largely be based upon how you respond to Christ now. Are you willing to die today? Now is the time to die. Now is the time to yourself, to this world, and all that it offers, so that in the ages to come, you might have eternal life and be glorified in heaven with Him. Let's pray. Lord, You know the condition of each of our hearts. Lord, we don't even know our own so much of the time. But I pray that you would work now. And if there's anyone here who has yet to submit their life fully and completely to you, that today would be the day of their salvation. You'd break through whatever hardness resists and melt it so that they too might experience the love and mercy and grace and peace and hope that are abundantly theirs in Christ. And Lord, for those of us who do know you and yet might be caught up in sin, in fear, selfishness, Lord, whatever things may be hindering us from fully obeying you, let those things be clear to us so that we would know what we must repent from, so that we would know how we can follow you, follow you fully, even as you've called each one of us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.